This is our third lesson in the the subject of suffering and sorrow, and we're still specifically talking about uh, pain and suffering. And today I want us to take a look uh, primarily at the book of Job. We're going to do a complete quick run-through, but certainly the book of Job sets before us uh, an entire book, a lengthy book at that, uh, that I believe God gave us. And, And by the way, it's one of the oldest books of the Bible. I think was given very early because it is such a universal subject uh, that God's people need to hear from God on this. And we remember that it is God's word. It is given for us to study, for us to consider and contemplate. And like so many other parts of the Bible, there are mysteries there. Uh, There are things that are not just laying there on the surface that we have to dig a little deeper and think about and recognize that uh, God, part of what God tells us is that he's bigger than us and that there are mysteries. And I'm thankful that there are mysteries. If there were no mysteries with God, he wouldn't be much of a God uh, because I'm pretty puny in my ability to comprehend and and see things. And so uh, there's much there, but we'll take a a quick look at it. I want to begin with a a quote from uh, C.S. Lewis. His book will be probably drawing out several of these, a book he wrote after his wife died. The book's called A Grief Observed. And uh, he chronicled his own grief as he was going through uh, deep grief and uh, wrote down a number of uh, his thoughts as he was going through that process. But he says, um, we are promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn. And I accept it. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it is different when the thing happens to oneself, not to others, and in reality, not imagination. And that's so true. Again, and we recognize as we talk about these things that when I'm dealing with things in theory or just with the ideas uh, and I'm not actually suffering at the moment, it's very different. When the suffering comes along, uh, it's one thing to know something in my head. It's another thing to apply it when the actual situation comes along. That is the goal, by the way. And one of the reasons we talk about these and many other things, uh, hopefully at times, uh, for, for most people perhaps, when we're not going through great suffering, is so that when that time does come, we have a foundation. We have things there that we can turn to. That doesn't mean it'll be easy. That doesn't mean it'll all come rushing back and Uh, that we will just say, oh, okay, well, I understand all this now. Uh, There will be a new need to re-examine and look at things uh, when those situations arise. We've all heard the phrase, the patience of Job. It's really kind of become an idiom in our language, though many of those who use it uh, to describe their need for patience are describing situations that don't begin to compare with Job's situation. Job, of course, is one of the great sufferers in Scripture. And in the drama which bears his name, the themes uh, are worked out of both human suffering and the questions of human sin, of man's folly, of God's wisdom, of despair, and of hope. We see all of these in the book of Job. And so we are confronted with the basic problem of understanding pain. 
In the face of such suffering, man will inevitably stumble uh, in his attempts to understand what's going on. Again, we're limited in our ability to comprehend all the details, all the, the events that are affected, all the people that are affected, how it is working in our own lives. And our solutions are, are really, uh, as we look within ourselves or ask certain questions, we're often left only with our own tentative groping for answers. But from speculation to wisdom, there is one sure way. And it is summed up in the great conclusion found in Job chapter 28, verse 28. So when we get to the end of the book, Job says this, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. And so this is very similar to the summary that we see in the book of Ecclesiastes after Solomon had explored all that life had to offer in terms of its pleasures. So here it's interesting that in the book of Job, <clears throat> the conclusion of his great suffering and trial is uh, the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom to depart from evil. That is understanding. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the end And the conclusion that Solomon draws after pursuing all kinds of pleasures under the sun is this. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so uh, that's just an interesting parallel to see that no matter what we explore, we always are brought back to that central point. To recognize that we live before Almighty God. We are His creatures. Uh, He is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving. And in that context, with all of our misunderstanding, with all of our lack of understanding, our ignorance of, of what's going on, we find our comfort and strength in recognizing our position before Him. G.K. Chesterton's favorite book of the Bible was the book of Job, and he wrote a commentary on the book of Job. And in the introduction, he says this, Verbally speaking, the enigmas of Jehovah seem darker and more desolate than the enigmas of Job. Yet Job was comfortless before the speech of Jehovah and is comforted after it. He has been told nothing but he feels the terrible and tingling atmosphere of something which is too good to be told. The refusal of God to explain his design is itself a burning hint of his design. And then this is a kind of a famous statement he makes. The riddles of God are more satisfying than the solutions of man. And so after Job questions God, and then God says, Hold on a minute before I answer. Let me ask you some questions. And then he goes through a long list of questions for Job. Uh, Then Job reaches the conclusion that, that God doesn't owe me an explanation. If God can take care of all of that, then I'm certain he can take care of me. And so the opening chapters not only set the scene for the great debate which is to follow. Remember the, the friends that are going to come along and they're going to have their own analysis of what's happening with Job. But it also takes us behind the scenes to see some powerful forces of evil which must be taken into account if we're going to make sense 
out of the suffering of the innocent. I don't think we do this quite often enough. Maybe we're afraid of uh, discussions of the devil and demonic forces and what have you uh, as explanations because sometimes they're overused and misused, but that is not an excuse for us to ignore what the Bible does tell us about such things. We are reminded that beyond the world that we see, there's an invisible realm where spiritual forces are at work whose influence upon the course of human history and upon individuals is really beyond our comprehension. In other words, there are things going on we can't see or comprehend. And so the evil spirit who plays a key role in the book of Job is designated Satan. And the Hebrew word means the adversary. And he, hap- and he appears here as elsewhere in Scripture as the enemy of God and as the enemy of God's people. The other titles which the Bible's, Bible uses to refer to this basic enmity uh, are, for example, the devil, the Greek word uh, diablos, meaning slanderer. And so in the Garden of Eden, he slanders God as he persuades Eve that God's word is not to be taken at face value and that God is no friend of those that he has created. Likewise, in the opening chapters of Job, he slanders a truly godly man. In all the malicious charges which have been laid against the people of God down through the years, and especially in the false accusations directed against Christ himself, we see the slanderous activity of the devil. He is described in Revelation 12.10 as, quote, the accuser of the brethren. And the title there is supplemented by other, the other two titles, devil and Satan. In Matthew 12, 24, he is called Belzebub. Baal Zebub was a Philistine deity, the lord of the flies, and whether by a change of spelling or by a deliberate Hebrew comment on the alleged deity, the title became Baalzebub, excuse me, Baalzebul, which is literally the Lord of Filth. In Matthew 12:24, the further thought is present also that he is the Lord of the demons. He has this legion of demons who work with him, a third of the angelic hosts that were cast out of heaven with him. And we have no idea how many that is, except a whole bunch. It's uh, uh, certainly in the thousands, if not greater than that. Um, And so he has, we know from this text and others that he has access to God's presence, and the precise mode of that access is beyond our knowledge. What has been revealed is that as a fallen angel, he has been cast out of heaven and reserved for judgment. And so in Job 1.6, we read, When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, Satan also was among them. His reply to God's question about his activity indicates just how widespread his activity is. He has come in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 7, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down in it. 
Now, we don't need to conclude that Satan is omnipresent or or omniscient. These attributes only belong to God Almighty. But it does seem plain that he does have widespread activity, and as a disembodied spirit, I suspect he can move rather rapidly. In addition to this, he also has all of his demonic emissaries who are ready to do his bidding and to speed uh, to speedily run errands for him. And so to hear God challenging Satan is to have kind of a further window opened <clears throat> on the problem of the suffering of believers. And so God presents Job as a rebuke to the slanderer whose blasphemous aim is always to discredit the Almighty. And in verse 8 of chapter 1, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? So in this story, we're going to start with a man that the Bible describes as blameless. Job, a righteous man, a godly man. Here's a living repudiation of Satan's slanderous attacks on the integrity of God. For in Job, in Job, God's sovereign grace is wonderfully exemplified. But the slanderer, of course, is quick with his reply. Job has prospered enormously. And so the devil says his religious profession, turns out, hasn't hurt him in any way. Hadn't cost him anything. But let God touch his possessions, and, and then the devil claims that Job will then curse God to his face. Well, of course he loves you. Of course he's faithful to you. Of course he worships and praises you. Look what all he has. Look at how wealthy he is and all the prosperity he has. If you'll just take that away from him, he'll change his tune. And so God permits Satan to do uh, what he wants to do. And we find out not only the continuing mystery of God's dealing, but also a light of encouragement in the darkness as God does permit Satan to do what he wants with Job so long as he doesn't touch him in his person. And there are a couple of encouraging truths then in the face of pain. The first place is that Satan can only act by the permission of God. Uh, The Lord does not stand back in helpless frustration. He takes the initiative with Satan and he will retain that initiative. God, not Satan, is still the Lord of the universe. Think about how many times God has used evil men in the past to bring about good purposes for his people. Sometimes chastisement, sometimes uh, to accomplish other kinds of goals long term to bring about the good of his people. Any number of things where the evil acts of men, including the, the crucifixion of Christ himself, was truly an evil act of men, and yet it was used to bring about the salvation of many. And so again, God's power is demonstrated. Also, Satan's malevolence is held in check, and it's God who prescribes the boundaries beyond which Satan can go. That limit may seem at times beyond human endurance, but in fact, the restraining hand of God is always there. Paul has the same thought when he writes to the Corinthians. He says, no temptation has overcome you except 
such as, as a common demand, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may also be able to bear it. And so Satan, when unleashed, acts with all the fury of an embittered adversary. Disasters begin to fall like hammer blows. Job's children perish and his property is destroyed. This is an extreme case. There are human and material agencies involved. So, for example, there are raiding Sabaeans and marauding Chaldeans. And there, is, there are lightning flashes and destructive uh, tornadoes that spread havoc in Job's life. He's hit from every angle. Every direction. But behind these human factors and these natural calamities, there is an evil power at work. And we do well then to remind ourselves that in this fallen world, the pains and diseases, the suffering and the misery have often an explanation which lies beyond this world. Or at least in a way that we can't see. What is Job's initial reaction? It's really incredible. It's it's pretty magnificent, actually. He might well have been overwhelmed by his grievous losses, but we don't see any hint of rebellion in Job. The great slanderer does not succeed in enlisting or enrolling Job as an agent to vilify God. Instead, we find a quiet acquiescence of a man A man of God who has learned to submit to the chastening of the Lord and to still adore God. And so as we listen to Job, we learn the right attitude of suffering. It's interesting. We have little irritations and aggravations in our lives that get us all bent out of shape and upset and worked up. And and here's a man who just lost everything. Listen to what he says. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Now, did Job understand what was going on? No. Didn't have a clue. Could he ask, and does he ask, why is this happening to me? Yes, he does. Is that okay to ask? Absolutely. But he knew where the limits were. He knew he could not sin. He knew that what he, there were certain things he knew about God that were his bulwark, that were his foundation. And so he wasn't going to accuse God of sin. But the ultimate point in pain has not yet been reached. The devil has been thwarted by the continuing godliness of Job, but there is further pain, and so... We kind of have a reenactment of the first scene. Again, Satan is challenged by God to consider the integrity of Job. Now, what is integrity? Let's just talk about that for a moment. I heard an illustration recently that was helpful to me in understanding the notion of integrity. If you have a chain, a steel chain, let's say you have a hundred links in that chain, the integrity of that chain is only as good as its weakest link. If you say the chain has integrity, you'd have to say the strength runs through every link in the chain. If it has one weak link, then the chain's no good. 
When we have integrity, Job has integrity. It's not just he's strong when things are going well, but he's also strong and faithful when things are not going well. And so he has an integrity that runs all the way to the bone, if you will. It is who he is. And so again, the slanderer returns to the attack. And this time his allegation is that Job is ready to forfeit everything uh, to save his own skin. Let him taste pain in his own body and he will curse God, and so, or so Satan claims, and in response, God gives him a little wider latitude. God is still in control, of his, and his permission is still essential, and the limit on Satan's activity is prescribed, but he is permitted to go further and to inflict actual physical pain so long as Job's life is spared. And so we draw two conclusions here about Satan's activities in the realm of suffering. In the first place, he is able to bring sickness. He he also has the power to cause death. The very fact that God imposes as a restriction upon uh, a restriction that Job's life is to be spared is an indication that, except for the restraint of the devil, He could have gone further and actually taken Job's life. But the statement that he has the power to inflict both illness and death must be set firmly in the context of God's sovereign power. Did Satan inflict death upon Christ? Yes. That's when his heel was bruised. Of course, as Jesus was crushing his head... um, Satan was able to bring about that infliction of death and pain and suffering upon Christ through human agents and so forth. But God was never out of control. God was still going to take even that and work it together for good. So Satan may be permitted to act with destructive power, but permission is required if he's to act at all, and the limits are clearly prescribed. God's ultimate aim is, of course, far removed from what Satan has in view. As the great adversary plans only injury and loss, but the sovereign God has a purpose in view which he will achieve through the devil's malicious activity, namely the blessing of his people and ultimately the manifestation of his own glory. Now, when you're in the midst of some great suffering, that's hard to see. But it's necessary to see that promise, that hope, that expectation, remembering that we have been told that all the sufferings of this life are nothing compared to the weight of glory that is to be revealed. So however bad it is, we've been told uh, that at some point when we look at that by comparison, it's going to take on a whole new perspective. All of this activity in the heavenly realm, however, is hidden from Job. That's important, I think, as we read this story. We have the advantage in this case, or in the case of Joseph, we get to read the whole story. We get to look behind the scenes. God has let us see what's going on that we would have no way of knowing. And Job certainly had no way of knowing. Joseph had no way of knowing what God was up to. But here are two of many examples we find in the Bible where people are trusting God, even though we have far more information than they had. All Job knows is the further agony of intense physical pain 
as his whole body is covered in sores. At this point, we encounter two utterly diverse reactions. His wife responds with angry bitterness, which is the normal reaction of sinful people. Curse God, she says, and die. What's the point of life in the face of such misery? And so this question is often asked, and tragically, sometimes it ends in suicide. But Job still shows his godliness as he submits to this fresh discipline from the Lord. And in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? It's now that the great debate begins, and Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, show up. They are shocked at his terrible condition. They obviously care about Job. Their, their grief at his plight. And yet, as their speeches develop, it becomes increasingly clear that their sympathy is not enough. Indeed, sympathy without wisdom can create a sort of censure, a sort of cutting off of Job. And advice which does not spring from the Word of God soon becomes blame. Certainly, they say many things which are true, but their fundamental argument is false. What is their fundamental fallacy? It's one which continues through the three cycles of speeches and is advocated with increasing severity, and that is, quite simply, that great suffering implies great sinfulness. If Job is suffering so much, he must have sinned in some grievous way. And so their view is that judgment on sin always happens in this world. If then a man suffers, it must be the judgment of God which he is facing. And so Eliphaz puts it in terms of a question in chapter 4, verse 7. Whoever perished, whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the righteous cut off? And so the three friends emphasize truths about God. Eliphaz emphasizes God's moral perfection and Bildad his unwavering justice and Zophar his omniscience. True as far as that goes. But they don't seem to know very much about the grace and mercy of the Lord and of his wisdom, which does not operate simply in the context of this present world. Of that they apparently know nothing. As a result, each one surpasses the other in severity until Zophar reaches the conclusion that Job actually got less than he deserved. Throughout, the argument remains the same. Suffering is God's judgment on sin, and the depth of man's suffering is an indicator of the, great, uh, of the, of the uh, greatness of his sinfulness. Now, in the face of the sustained barrage, Job maintains his integrity. There is no hidden sin of which he is guilty and for which he is suffering. Yet under pressure, Job begins to say things which later he will bitterly regret. He acknowledges the hand of God in it all, and he rightly points to the fallacy of their arguments for the wicked. He says, quite obviously, the wicked prosper. 
But then another note creeps in and he feels desperately the remoteness of God. C.S. Lewis talks about this after uh, his wife had died that he went to God and he all he heard was the slamming of a door and bolting and double bolting, meaning God was locking the door on the inside so he could not get in. That's how he felt. And so Job is feeling remoteness, a feeling which often comes in times of great suffering and his sense of God's irresistible power fills him with fear. And so he complains at God's apparent lack of concern in face of the injustice of the wicked. And God, he claims, pays no attention to the prayer of the sufferer. One thing I love about the Bible, many things I love about the Bible, but one is that it's it's not candy-coated. It tells it like it is. We can read Job and say, yeah, I know what he's thinking. I know what he's feeling. In all the, yet in all the turmoil of his soul, and even in the midst of his complaints against God, there are gleams of light which show some true faith. The majesty of God makes him long for an umpire who might stand between them and plead Job's cause. He feels the injustice of his friends. And then in a rare moment of insight, he speaks triumphantly of that need being met. In chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. And so in the midst of his turmoil, his strife, even his doubt, there remains faith. There remains the things he knows for sure. And so there's one more important contribution to the debate before God replies, and that is Elihu who does not have the final answer, for that's going to come from God, yet he has much to say that is profoundly true. Where Job's frustrated agony led the sufferer to irreverence, Elihu replies with a firm insistence on a reverent attitude before God. In Job 34.10, Therefore listen to me, you men of understanding, far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. One lesson which even a godly man like Job still needs to learn is that stubborn persistence of human pride. It's this pride which God humbles in the misery of our suffering. Suffering isn't, however, as we pointed out, it is not a meaningless experience. It's a method of discipline which God employs for our ultimate benefit. And so Elihu ends his speech with an emphasis which anticipates the grandeur of God's reply. Instead of trying to find our answers to the problem of pain within the narrow confines of our own little world, we're going to need to lift our thoughts to God. The glory of creation about us displays on every hand the power and the wisdom of the Creator. And that's what God's going to call Job's attention to. I want you to look around and see what I've done. 
But while we can detect the, only detect the edges of his ways, there is a depth of glory which we cannot plumb and before which we must bow in adoring silence. Chapter 36, verse 26. Behold, God is great and we know him not. Neither can the number of his years be searched out. I've commented on this, I think, last week, but and certainly in the sermons. When understanding who God is, how big he is, how powerful he is, and that, to say to understand that, we can't fully comprehend that. But as we move in that direction, as we stop having a little bitty Jesus, a little private Savior, a little private God, uh, see, the world is perfectly okay with you having that. You're no threat at all. And by the way, that's of virtually no use at all. But if God is who he says he is, the almighty creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, that, of course, includes you. And it's really good to know when you're suffering that he is almighty and that he does know you and he loves you and he's wise if that's true, and I have some beginning comprehension of, of the real God, then now, even if I don't understand, I have, an under, I have a peace that passes understanding because I have something to hold on to that matters, that's substantive. And so, while, uh, and so until that day when in my flesh I shall see God, there will be great and unresolved mysteries. Where we rebel against God's dealing, we shall only flounder more miserably in the darkness. And where we learn to submit humbly to his providence, even when the way is very dark, we will find the light of the presence of God illuminating the pathway. And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Elihu has prepared, the, has prepared the way for the great finale of this majestic and dramatic poem. God speaks, and before his world, Job is brought low in penitence for the foolish words that he has spoken. God's answer does not reply to many of Job's agonizing questions, nor does it answer ours. God clearly will not be put on trial to be cross-examined by his creatures. He will give answers, but they are freely given, and not because he submits to the scrutiny of men. God is not accountable to me. Indeed, his reply follows a completely different line. And that is to display the overwhelming majesty and greatness of God, beside, beside which man appears in all of his puny weakness. And so the Lord ranges over the wonders of creation and at every point man is the helpless onlooker. The pounding of the ocean and the light of the midday sun, the torrential rain and the icy gripping the surface of the, the ice gripping the surface of the lake, the quiet breezes, the flashes of lightning, the complex Life of animal creation with the lion and the hippopotamus and the crocodile and Leviathan. All creation tells one great story. How great is our God and how worthy of praise. Set in the midst of God's sweeping survey 
of creation is an interjection uh, in which he rebukes Job, and indeed all of us who are so ready to question what God's up to, in verse chapter 40, verse 2, shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. And so Job's immediate response to the rebuke is repentance. He doesn't capitulate to the charges of his friend who suggested that his righteousness was a pretense, so he's not agreeing with them. And God himself, in a later rebuke to the friends, will vindicate the integrity of Job. But godly, the godly man that he is, yet he knows that he has still spoken foolishly. The valley of suffering can lead the most godly into cherishing false notions about God and letting inner resentment fester until it produces sinful words. But Job has learned his lesson, a lesson that every suffering saint needs to learn in chapter 40, verse 4. Here's what Job says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I will lay my hand on my mouth. It's in that attitude of humility and submission that he is able to listen with deeper wonder to God's further words. And as the glory of the Lord continues to unfold, so then he humbles himself before God, and in that self-abasement and submission, he finally finds peace. Verse, chapter 42, verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And so the book of Job furnishes us with various answers to the problem of the suffering of the righteous. The reply to the prologue is that it's a test of the genuineness of the character of a man of God and is one which demonstrates the grace of God to the watching world and to spiritual powers. The answer of the three friends that suffering implies personal sinfulness is exposed as inadequate. Elihu's contribution, by contrast, expresses the truth that suffering is a means of discipline in perfecting the saints. But the ultimate solution, however, is found in the fresh revelation of the sovereignty of God. There will always be profound mystery which is beyond man's wisdom to penetrate, and the path of submission is the way to peace, trusting God. But while suffering remains a mystery, we're not simply left with the thought of God as a majest of the majestic one. He is also the gracious one who comes to the godly in a time of trial. It wasn't after his restoration to health and prosperity that Job found peace, but while he was still suffering. He hadn't found all the answers, but he had come to see his own pride and his insistence that he must have answers. He has bowed in worship before the Almighty and has found himself not like some stoic submitting to a cold, relentless fate, but rather like a child in the darkness gripping his father's arm. And so the lesson was one which a suffering saint of the New Testament also learned as he too listened to the voice of God. And we read in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, 
My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul echoes the spirit of submission of Job as he replies, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And I think this big picture, this big overview that we get from the book of Job is helpful for us to remember who we're dealing with and who we are and what our place is in this story. And that he is at work and that he hasn't stopped, he hasn't forgotten, he is bringing all of this to a place. And as we mature, as we grow, as we are glorified eventually and see with new eyes, it will all make sense. Now again, he gives us tokens, he gives us many things to help us. And we're going to be talking about a lot of those things in the weeks ahead as we deal with the subjects of grief and sorrow. But we need to remember, ultimately, our Heavenly Father is the answer. Father, we are grateful for your word that reveals to us what's going on in ways that we could never know, that you have told us much. Help us, Lord, to receive it and believe it and act upon it, even as Job did. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.